Hello, fellow foodies, and happy Valentine's Day. We've got a really special episode for you this week. I've got one of my friends and colleagues dialing in all the way from Poland. He has some interesting tips about romance and nature, and he's also going to tell us about some of his fascinating work in the domains of wild foods and wildflowers and gardening in nature. Um, Dr. Wukash Wuchai is an associate professor at the University of Zhajiao in Poland. His main interests include the traditional uses of wild foods in Eurasia, um, maintaining biodiversity in wildflower gardens, as well as looking at the use of plants in rituals and beliefs. He has carried out research in a number of different places, including Poland, Romania, Croatia, um, and in the Caucasus, Laos, and China. He's also very interested in archival sources concerning plant uses in Eastern Europe. What's really cool about, about his work, though, is in addition to his focus in academic productivity, he also walks the walk. He has a large wild garden in the Carpathians where he organizes cooking workshops with wild plants, fungi, and insects. And he's one of the major leaders in the foraging movement in um in Eastern Europe. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to see you. Hello. <laughs> so why don't we begin by telling us a little bit about your special garden. I know that this is a place that you've really, um, you've really cultivated over years and, and this is the place where you do a lot of teaching um, and workshops with, with students. Um, yeah, the, the garden was started 23 years ago when I was a, a PhD student and um, it coincided with my scientific crisis. I wanted to leave academia and I got a big prize from the government for like best PhD students in the country. And because of this prize, it, it was the first time in my life I had some money. <laughs> I decided to buy <laughs> and disappear. So I thought the people were saying that actually the prize completely ruined my scientific career. But it was just the beginning um, because I, for this money, I bought a lot of land in, a, in Outback in, in Polish Carpathians. It was very cheap then. It was a time when communism was falling, was falling and people didn't see the value of land. And people in the countryside were selling land very cheaply. So really, I could buy like 40 acres for like nearly nothing for the price of a, of a car, you know. Oh, wow. And it was um, a very beautiful place, you know. Visitors from America say it looks like Appalachians, you know, just rolling hills and lots of woodland mm. and meadows and streams and um, quite a lot of biodiversity. But the, the, the land I bought was just abandoned farmland. So not just, some of it was like abandoned 10 years ago with like 10-year-old birches. Some was just like empty fields. So I had this idea, I will bring native plants in the uh, in this in this place and just add all the plants that are missing from, from the landscape, from the surrounding area. Of course, there are some exotic plants as well, because, you know, sometimes they are useful for showing edibles and useful in the garden. And <clears throat> so originally the, the garden was created and the, the whole land was bought to be self-sufficient. And I had this idea to be to be self-sufficient. I, I dropped my job at university suddenly, and uh, I was still finishing my PhD, just writing it in a in a shelter, in like a like a wikiup. Uh, tried to build a variety of shelters based on ethnographic sources, um, including like wikiups, wigwams, um, and um, also uh, make like underground dwellings. Um, so I tried to recreate a Mandan lodge and a kind you of, you know, really like a, a birch bark pick yeah. up or something. Uh, of course, it failed for a longer time. I just couldn't live there for, for, for long enough because it was smoky and it was not that warm. And we had a little baby, so it was really crazy. So eventually, my family out just were really sorry for us and bought us a um, a small old cabin, which we then renovated, and then uh, we, we built another one. So that's how it started. So one of your early um, kind of endeavors in working with nature was the creation of this business around wildflower seeds and, and wildflower meadows. How did you get started with that? Um, 
It started actually on one spring weekend. We came to see a friend who lived in England and he showed me these packets of wildflower seeds from England. And, and um, he said, well, how do you live in the land? And I, we said, I just gather wild food and, you know, we have a garden and um, we teach them English. And um, he said, oh, why don't you produce wildflower meadows? And I said, well, I thought of it, but, you know, I don't know how to start. And he said, just walk out of the house and start collecting seeds. <laughs> and that's how it started. We just, you know, I just started doing, going around the house and collecting native seeds. I had some experience because I was working previously, I was working for a botanic garden. So I was working for Index Seminum and I had an idea, you know, how to do it. That's great. So you're really living in the wild. You're building your own structures out in this beautiful mountain um, ecosystem, collecting yeah. wildflower seeds. And you mentioned that you were also um, gathering wild foods. Did that begin with your kind of academic interest or did your academic interest emerge out of your own curiosity about um, the wild? There was actually something that I started doing as a kid. My grandfather mm -hmm. was into forestry and gardening and he was telling me lots of stuff and about uses of plants. And I used to live in, in a wooden cabin, but in the center of the city with a big garden. And we had two aunties living with us and they were very old and they would spend a lot of time collecting nettles and making dishes with nettles. Mm. And one of them was, um, was very ill from early childhood and st she still managed to live 80 years. And they were saying, oh, she lives only because of the nettles. And, you know, she would eat <laughs> nettles every day. Uh, so it was always in my head, and uh, we had um, a subject at university called practical ethnobotany, uh, practical botany, and in this subject we um, we just made dishes from wild plants, and um, I thought oh, it was great. It's a great idea, and this was time. It was like um, the end of like mid nineties, I would say early 90s, when it wasn't so popular and the internet was very weak, was just beginning. So I had no sources. It was very difficult to, to find sources. I had mainly Polish sources. I didn't have all the foreign sources. But I started gathering literature and, you know, getting experience. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is really unique about your work is, is this idea of that you really focus on this edge of academia and ecological activism. Um, how, do, how do these topics from academia, the topics like biodiversity and um, gardens, wild foods, how does all this interplay in how you approach your science? Um, I think it's, it's very creative to be both a scientist and an activist. Sometimes it's very difficult to combine it because of the lack of time. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the lack of time and energy is the only problem, but once you get on this edge, you don't want to go away from it. You probably know yourself publishing mm -hmm. like popular books about use of plants because um, um, also by interacting with um, non uh, non scientists, you also get new insight. You you know how to communicate things because simple people don't read your papers. That's something very tragic for me. That you know. I know that writing a very complicated paper, reporting some interesting uses from some area of the world, maybe 50 people will read it and, you know, a few more will read my abstract, but mm, very few people won't understand it. Yeah. Uh, and it's really fascinating. So I was always, always like, um, sometimes I was like, there were years I was more into science and there was a year I really wanted to do more workshops and I was like, work with my science and then going back to science, like going on a spiral. I mean, the whole idea that I was a PhD student, I left my university, I, I dropped dropped out, fortunately, just before finishing the PhD. So I managed to finish the PhD. Uh, but then I didn't do science for eight years. Mm. And because I was so fascinated by primitive cultures and cultures different than the, the Western cultures that I decided to unlearn writing. And for two years, I didn't use writing, only for a tax form. To, wow. To, to clear <laughs> my brain from this shit, you know. Well, yeah. I, I, I love writing systems. When I was three, I learned, learned to write Latin alphabet and Cyrillic and like try to learn Arabic letters and Hebrew and Chinese letters. 
I was obsessed by writing systems and I still have books where I copied different, you know, writing systems and learned them. And then at the age of 24, I decided to unlearn writing because I thought it just takes too much, too much place in my brain and open to like, be like a person who doesn't think in this kind of logical way, but open to like, uh, you know, symbolic thinking, fasting, you know, shamanism, I don't know, just kind of feeling with your body, with your, you know, dreams. It was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like something I could only fantasize about, about really just returning to nature and being, experiencing these things um, without the distractions of the modern world. That had to have been just such a transformational period for you. Uh, one thing that I remember was um, I was going to actually, before dropping um, dropping out of academia, I was going to study for a PhD in Oklahoma. I got an invitation for from a plant ecologist in Oklahoma, and um, I was seriously considering going there. And one day I had a dream. I dreamt I was digging behind my parents' garden, and I dug out a big golden chalice. And um, I woke up, I was at my parents' house, and I said, you know, I'm not going to Oklahoma. I have to stay in Poland. And um, on that on that day, I got this prize for which I bought the land. So wow. I said, okay, I got this money. I have to put it back in the earth. Yeah, so... Of course, after, um, after a few years of, um, you know, chopping wood and foraging and being, trying to be like, you know, um, a bit more like, you know, Amish people live, um, I, um, I was longing for science. And um, my then wife, um, um, she started Amazon account. It was just the beginning of Internet. And we started buying books on Amazon. And one of the first things I typed was ethnobotany. I was mm. interesting. Are there any books on, of ethnobotany? And I found the book by Daniel Merriman, Native American Ethnobotany, and I ordered it. And then, my God, I just <laughs> found sources in one place, all this literature. And I, I just, you know, started checking what are the plant uses of my native plants in Poland by, you know, recorded in North America traditionally. And it was so inspiring. So I started experimenting with with some things. Mm-hmm. That's great. And you're so you're experimenting with things in Poland, and then you're also as as your career develops, you're also doing field work in many different locations. I mean, yeah. in Asia, in the Caucasus, in the Balkans, yeah. in Poland, these have very different. Um, places of very different ecosystems, very different types of plants, very different yeah. cultures. What were some of the major things that you learned from from comparing these sites or from your experiences in these sites? I mean, this was really fascinating, but it came later because we had little children and we didn't mm. had no money and I didn't have a university job and the university job appeared out of nowhere. You know, someone phoned and said, you want to teach this course? And, you know, and uh, and then slowly I got a full-time job and then I forgot the funding. Um, so it really, the fieldwork started in around 2011. Mm, not, okay. Not such a long time ago. Uh, but um, um, I, my main interest is wild food. So when I go abroad, I usually study the wild food. And um, I actually found it very interesting asking the same questions, but in different places, because we, we, we often have like very big research centers, ethnobotanical research centers, who are focused on um, documenting traditional uses of plants in their own country, like, you know, people in Spain doing lots of work or in mm-hmm. Italy or in, in China and in Kunming studying mi- mi- minorities around it. Uh, but, you know, the Polish traditional culture is quite eroded. So I knew that in order to actually get more interesting stuff in the field work, I have to go somewhere else. Um, so yeah, so it was fascinating to actually st- studying the same, even like often, like I have the same number of informants, around 15 informants in one field study. So I would go to an area, go to like three, four villages, interview in depth, 50 people. So I find it fascinating comparing, uh, you know, yeah. how these people respond. For example, what fascinates me when I'm in China, people pay no interest to fruits. 
Hmm. They are not interested in foraging fruits. They are obsessed by wild vegetables. You know, they would just like list, you know, 50 species of wild vegetables and then mention like three kinds of fruits. And I said, how do you use them? I said, oh, we just snack on them. We don't make any preserves. They are useless. Why would we <sighs> use fruits if we have wild vegetables? It's such a different perspective than Poland, where, you know, people are obsessed by collecting, you know, blackberries and, you mm -hmm. know, blueberries, making jams and compots and drying them and are very suspicious of wild vegetables. So this shows this, you know, the differences. I was also, for example, quite surprised that um, in many parts of China, not in Yunnan, but in central China, people actually collect very few species of mushrooms. We hmm. actually think of Chinese people are very mycophilous and um, they love mushrooms. They, eat, they love eating mushrooms. They would um, eat the main few types which are cultivated. And in Yunnan, they collect a lot of species of mushrooms. But if you go to other provinces in the Qinling Mountains, not. And I understood it only when I came there because the mountains are so steep, you know, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Because if you want to collect like nettles or something, you can always go behind your house. But if you want to collect mushrooms, you have to really walk a lot and you have mm. to crawl in the mountains. You cannot walk. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then you go to Yunnan and you see these extensive forests of Pinus yunnanensis, you know, looking like a park, you know. So we have pine trees, you have nice hills where you can walk and then you can collect mushrooms. Yeah. So. So the landscape really, really influences the types of foods that people go after in the wild. Yeah. 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 I also like the simple dishes. You know, now, now the, the wild, wild food foraging is so popular in like, you know, in expensive restaurants and people are trying to be very snobbish about it. But actually the way people eat it in the countryside, you probably know it yourself from your research. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. They would boil something or fry or maybe, you know, ferment it. And actually, it's not very complicated, usually. Yeah, some of my favorite wild greens from Italy are just blanched and then fried with some olive oil and garlic, maybe a little chili pepper. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. delicious. Just Well, in Poland, what are some of the top herbs that you work with in the wild or wild vegetables or wild fruits that, that you teach a lot of your students about and that you use personally? Uh, Poland is a country with climate and vegetation probably similar to New England, and um, um, we have a long winter, and um, uh, people are quite suspicious of wild vegetables, but they, they used to collect some, and sorrel is very com common, Rumex mm. acetosa is a very common uh, vegetable used by people, and uh, people used to use nettles and goosefoot, Kinopodium album, a lot, mm -hmm. these were the three main main species used. And in the 19th century, uh, in older times, people would um, would use more species. But this would rarely be more than like six or seven species of wild greens per village. So they would maybe use like lamium or um, malva or, mm -hmm. you know, locally, egopodium or heracleum, but, but really, really only in some, some areas. Uh, and they would always eat all the possible berries in the forest and a lot of species of mushrooms. Nice. Well, you mentioned a term earlier, herbophilia and mycophilia. And this, I wanted to explore this concept a little bit of how within some cultures, there's a deep love for wild vegetables or for mushrooms or for fruit. And in others, there's a deep suspicion. And, yeah. you know, can you expand on that? Like, how how do these kind of kind of environment of suspicion or deep, uh, you know, fascination with the <laughs> wild? How does that come about? Uh, we usually have to do with a spectrum. So we would have two opposing attitudes towards something, and we label it philia or phobia from Greek, yeah, like liking mm -hmm. or or being scared of. Uh, so the first term was coined by Wasson's. Um, in the 1950s, mycophilia and mycophobia, liking mushrooms and not liking mushrooms. And uh, I coined the term herbophilia and herbophobia for being scared of greens and mm -hmm. uh, liking greens, herbophilia, liking greens. Um, I think it's, it, it's complicated because the reasons of these attitudes may be very different. Uh, we, of course, have to look at hunter-gatherers because mm -hmm. they 
they had a lot of land. They had access in the past to vast areas of land, and they would um, have a lot of access to meat or maybe like edible roots, sometimes fruits. So they didn't really uh, need wild vegetables so much. So we think there are some papers about it. We think that the the shift to using many wild vegetables goes with primitive agriculture, where people start hoeing land or maybe collect weeds on on um, burned land in the jungle. And because these un- usually annual weeds are very soft, mm-hmm. they don't have many alkaloids. They are they are, they are a byproduct of agriculture. If you plant something and then the plant is surrounded by Kinopodium album, you can either destroy it or include it in the diet. So yeah. definitely the the societies which like practice primitive agriculture, like have a lot of home gardens and um, it's like very traditional, would tend to have wild vegetables in the diet. And people who are like have access to a lot of land, maybe they are pastoralists or hunters, they would have a very small repertoire of, of wild vegetables. Um, also, it's just uh, sometimes it's, it's just it's cultural diffusion. You know, mm. there are some areas that for some reason preserve more knowledge, yeah, like in the Caucasus or in, you know, East Asia. And then wherever you go, people would know a lot because it's a general thing to do. And in some areas, it wasn't so strong and people just, you know, forgot it, even yeah. in places where they could use them. And um, we can, of, of course, look even at looking birds as well. You know, we can have some kind of ornithophilia or ornithophobia. Like, you know, there are some areas in Europe that people are obsessed by killing small birds. And in Poland, this is a sacrilege, you know. Mm. People would not do it, you know. You know, So it's, um, it's very cultural. There's a lot of prejudice, you know. And um, sometimes it has a very long, very long history, this prejudice. It's an adaptation. Well, you know, it's um, like this prejudice against bats. We have coronavirus now, similar coronaviruses in the bats, and we have more viruses like in rodents. They are infested by viruses. And so maybe this atavism of being scared of eating rodents or catching rodents and, and bats is associated with the presence of, you know, various kinds of fevers and viruses which we can get from mice mm-hmm. and some it's, it's just playing with statistics you know in some some areas of the world people catch rats and they survive on them in some areas they think they are dangerous they are dirty so i think it's changing all the time these attitudes yeah. are changing a bit but they are very uh conservative as well so people would really stick to to things in my in my area, I try to teach people new plants to eat or new mushrooms. No, they are very conservative. They would only eat what their parents told them. They were very keen. If I told them about any magical plants that can bring luck or misfortune, they they were very interested, very open. But in, if it, if it comes to food, they <sighs> want to see what their parents ate, what they've experienced. Yeah, in that early childhood. <clears throat> well, yeah. I I think about other. What what many people might think of as odd sources of foods besides wild plants and wild mushrooms are also insects and entomophagy. And I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the consumption of wild insects. Um, I'm experimenting on it on it a lot, and I wrote the first uh, book about eating insects in Europe, which is not in English, in 2005. It was mm-hmm. in Polish. Now I translated into English a couple of years ago, but had never time to publish it. Um, so I ate a lot of insects myself, and this is a really good source of food. But of course, in Europe, we are in you know more northern climates. We are limited by the very short vegetation season. Mm-hmm. But you, you look at Utah and you know some parts of North America. Native Americans would use them. It's just you know finding the species which is in large abundance and maybe you know getting some techniques how to catch it. And then we could maybe use it. That's great. I love insects. Well, <laughs> love eating them. That's great. I'm I'm hoping to do a future episode just on on the insect um, for food market because it is a booming, growing um, industry yeah. um, on, on on a large scale. Well, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about 
you know, looking at things historically, rural versus urban connectivity to not only wild foods, but also nature in general. Do you see in your work, do you see this this gap in connecting with nature among people that live in more urban environments versus rural? Or is there even a gap emerging between those in rural environments um, in their connectivity to nature and to wild foods and wild resources? I mean, in Europe, the, even the use of plants in the countryside is really declining everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Poland has has su- had such you know economic growth, and people, everyone has a car. They want to have lawns. They go to a supermarket. They are not interested. The young people are not interested in in, in using plants. So, uh, historically, it was very different. Yeah, and. Um, in the 19th century, uh, the population was growing rapidly in Europe, and um, also because of the introduction of potato. More kids mm-hmm. would survive at the beginning of the 19th century because potato was so productive, was like giving you twice as much calories from as many calories from a hectare than, than wheat or, or rye. So people started having more kids. They had better nutrition, more kids. They were so they, they were so abundant that they started even like producing a lot of vodka. And there was a big problem in the beginning of the 19th century with vodka in Poland because a lot of the potato was transformed into uh, into spirits. Mm. And then the potato blight came in the 1840s, and there was big famine. You know, so there was even there was even cannibalism. You know. Wow. Yeah, we have some records like um, a priest writing to the bishop asking, "Can I? Can I? Uh, what, can, what? What can I say to a woman who said in the confession that she ate her own children?" Yeah. <gasps> oh my Shall gosh. Try for business or not? Yeah. <laughs> um, so this was severe famine. Uh, what we were lucky about is that we have a lot of ethnographic sources from 19th century in, in some parts of Europe, not everywhere, but in some parts of Europe we have. And I think they are still not fully explored. And there are a lot of descriptions of what people ate during poor times. Mm. And uh, it's fascinating. Uh, there is a book um, written in, um, published first in Polish in 1926 by a guy called Adam Maurizio. He was um, um, he was a guy who whose family came from Switzerland, from an Italian-speaking area, and he was brought up in Krakow. They had a bakery, a patisserie actually, and uh, he became a professor of food science in Lwów, which is now Ukraine. And he published this book first in Polish because he spoke many languages from childhood, so he he wrote it in Polish, German, and French at the same time. So he published it in Polish, and then he published in German, and um, and then in French, the history of um, human nutrition, Geschichte der unserer Pflanzennahrung. And the only language where you, you cannot find it is English. So it's mm. a little-known book among the English-speaking scholars, but it's a, it's a fascinating um, piece of work, about 500 pages describing famines in Europe, Famine foods, various kinds of soups made from, you know, bark and, you know, and and mm. different kinds of primitive breads. Um, so this is one source. Um, another another very interesting source about the 19th century food in Poland is um, a questionnaire which was invented by a Polish botanist, Rostafiński. He was the director of a botanic garden in Kraków and... Um, he published a 70-question questionnaire about uses of plants, different uses like food and medicine and and plant dyes and cultivated plants and their names. And he uh, bought adverts in 60 titles of newspapers in Prussia, in Russia and in Austro-Hungary in Polish-speaking newspapers because he was collecting data about the Polish uses of plants. And he got a few hundred responses. It's pretty good. A lot. Yeah. And some of them are preserved. Actually, the, the first batch of responses was preserved in, it was found in Krakow, in the attic of the Botanic Garden, and then some more were found in Krakow. Um, so we have about, as I remember, about 200 letters from all over place, between Krakow and Minsk in Belarus and 
northern Poland. And um, a lot of the people who were writing were very educated, were like pharmacists giving Latin names of plants, putting dried plants in the letters, like aristocrats saying, my peasants eat this and that, or like um, even biologists. Uh, so the data is very like trustworthy, with a lot of Latin names in it. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 we, we made a few publications about it. And um, it was so meticulous what he did. And with some people, he corresponded over years. There's like more letters from one person. He was asking particular questions about uses of particular plants. But he never published it because his wife was very ill. Um, and he had to travel a lot to North Africa. I don't remember. It was. Tunisia or somewhere and um, just for for her to get better and he published some other things to make money so eventually he never actually published a lot from from this and once I started um, took part in the project of studying these archives I said to my friend who works in Warsaw in the botanic garden said look in the rubbish maybe you find some stuff there and you know she found me like a couple of weeks later, and she said, oh, I found this unknown manuscript written by Michał Federowski called um, Edible Plants of Belarusian Peasants, beautifully wow. illustrated with a large herbarium, you know, mm -hmm. which has never seen the light, you know. <laughs> so we, we published treasure. it, we like yeah. copied it, you know, scanned it. And then I said, look, look further, you know. Then she found some other herbarium. And another, and then she found some other um, work by Zygmunt Glogger, another ethnographer, also about the uses of plants in newspapers. There was a big pile of newspapers which wasn't cleared since the end of the 19th century. You know, the dust was gathering and there were wow. more newspapers added on top. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's fascinating. It's these treasures of knowledge in, in these... Uh just left in these museums that's that's amazing that you were able to bring them to light and i know you've also written some other um books uh in the past few years on uh guides to foraging um on this concept of of eating in the wild can you tell us a bit about those those books yeah this was the result mainly of my early work so so i you know i started um writing these books um, when I didn't have this data about all these archival sources. So it was, I was mainly using my experience or other popular books or, you know, even like Native American, you know, books about Native American uses of plants. So this, this was the, my first book. But then in um, 10 years ago, I published this um, book, Dzika Kuchnia, which means like wild cuisine which is richly illustrated and is very pleasing to the eye. One of these kind of books that you give as presents, you know, showing dishes of, with plants oh, and recipes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, this is Colt's Foot, for example. And right. uh, so uh, so here I incorporated my, my field experience and also the archival sources. And I included a lot of re foraging recipes from Eastern Europe. Poland, Romania, Croatia, etc. And um, we also published this book, which is like, in a way, Ethnobotany of Poland, this Fisher's Dictionary. That's another story. Professor Fisher was also in Lwów, now Ukraine. He was a Polish ethnographer and he collected, he also made a questionnaire in um, uh, before the Second World War and he collected a lot, he made like a database of mm -hmm uses of plants in Poland and present territory of Ukraine. And he had files. He died in 1940s and his files were packed. And I found them, it was maybe 15 years ago, packed in a parcel in the archive of Polish Ethnographic Society. Oh, unopened wow. since, I don't know, the Second World War, you know. Wow. His hand notes. And I said to my friend, Monika Kujawska, you have to make a grant, we have to study this. So she did. So we put a lot of effort in, into putting it in order. Mm. But then it turned out, but why, why, was he, why was he gathering it? Because he had, a, he had a, an order to publish a, a book that was going to be a big dictionary of all the Slavic nations. 
And he was the only one who actually managed to gather all the data needed for the book. And he wrote the, manu he wrote the part of the manuscript, which my friend found in Prague. Oh, I wow. don't know why in Prague, I don't remember the story, but she found it. She got information that might be in Prague. And we found the Polish and German version of, of the manuscript, but only from A to K. So we had to write, we had to just edit A to K and then L to Z, we wrote it ourselves using uh, his um, hand notes, imagining we are Adam Fisher and, <laughs> and we are writing it. That's fascinating. Um, so actually, this is not complete because uh, he missed some sources and now he didn't know Rostafinsky's work. So Rostafinsky's work is not in the book, but this is really like a compendium, a compendium you open like Native American ethnobotany, you know, database. Like you open at some name and you look what, how it was used in Poland. Yeah. Why is it so important to document these things, um, Lukasz? Is it why why is it so important really for the people of Poland but also across the globe to have this knowledge documented because once it's lost it's lost and um, sometimes people intuitively re recreate some uses you know because some some things are obvious you know um, but sometimes the knowledge is lost and that this knowledge may be the result of a hundred generations of people using certain Mm -hmm. planned in a certain way and then one generation breaks it so in a yeah. way recording it writing it down you know making films about it helps people who might want to recreate the knowledge and um and now especially when this there are these times of devolution of knowledge i think it's like so urgent you know that instead of putting money and sometimes stupid biochemical research on into politics into you know, some really stupid projects. And this is really cheap. So I tell people just take now a mobile and record what your grandmother says. You know, it's yeah. in a way the beginning. Uh, I can give you an example of a recipe we managed to rescue. Um, I mean, not we, it was rescued itself, but it was very interesting. Um, we used to have a tradition of making juniper beer made mm. from um, juniper pseudo fruits, you know fermented into a kind of like wine or beer. And um, this um, tradition survived only in one small area of Poland, in Kurpia. And um, by was actually used, was made only by two ladies. And these two or three ladies started um, making this drink for like tourist festivals. And people going to the village really liked this. It's really tasty. Mm. So they started producing more and more and more. And other neighbors said, oh, my God, yes, I used to make it in 1960s, you know. And it like a, a big commerce started of this natural drink, you know, um, where um, this was, um, you know, juni juniper pseudofruits and some honey and, and yeast and hops into made it this really amazing drink, really tasty. And um, so my friend told me about it and he did some recordings, he did field work about it. And then my other, another friend, Eva Pirożnikow, actually had some similar information from another area. And I started digging, you know, in, in um, literature and found some literature. And also I have a friend who, is, um, who specializes in studying the history of Polish food, Professor Dumanowski, and he even found um, newspaper adverts from the 19th century or prices and recipes wow. or like complaints of hunters that so people collect so many juniper berries that, <laughs> that thrushes, they hunted thrushes and there are no thrushes because juniper beer makers collected all the juniper all berries. All the juniper so, berries, yeah. Um, so you can see the background, which is all forgotten now, you know, like mm. sometimes poems about some dishes. Um, there is another very, very sad example, um, which is the history of using of sweet mana grass in Poland. This is a grass which grows in the marshes and was commonly collected as food in Poland. And now no one does it. It was completely forgotten. In the 1940s, 1950s, the last people stopped using it. And, uh, and this was so commonly used. 
and we have so many historical references. We even have um, uh, references in the court, um, uh, in like lists of items bought by the court of the King of Poland from the 15th century. So we have the price of managras in the 15th century. Uh, we could trace the prices of managras in different periods. They were like usually like about 10 times the price of wheat. And it was a common, um, it was a common uh, form of paying tributes. This is yeah. another interesting source. What peasants in feudal economy on the on the day of Saint Martin, 11th of November, what they had to bring to the Lord, you know, they so they would usually bring like one pot of uh, dried mushrooms and uh, water, sometimes even water cold drops, and nuts, hazelnuts, and you know, sweet mana grass. And there are lists of items they they had to bring. Fascinating. Yeah, so it's not so just it's, about the species. It's also, you know, it's not just about plant lists. This is about that rich detail and how these ingredients were transformed and um, made into dishes that were incredibly important to the culture at different points in time. I think the world would be richer for, you know, the recovery of so many of these recipes. So, but we have to try to do it everywhere because there are these yeah. gems everywhere. And um, with managras, actually, it's interesting because it wasn't so much peasant food. I mean, peasants would eat it, but it was so slow to consume that um, they usually paid tributes or they sold it to Jewish merchants, to the towns, or they would sell it to landlords. So this was made into expensive bread. So only the rich people could eat it. So it was well, like rich restaurants with forage food, yeah. <laughs> and it was also then, like 200 or 300 um, years ago. Another port wow. delicacy in among Polish aristocrats in the 18th century were the uh, rhizomes of, um, is it called, Acorus calamus, sweet flag. They were candied with sugar and they were like the whole carts full of of the rhizomes were dug out from ponds and turned into these very yeah. expensive sweets. So, in actually, we have to remember that when we look in the past, uh, it's not that there's something now and there was something in the past, because also in the past there were fluctuations. So, for example, the sweet managras, we practically have no archaeobotanical records of people gathering sweet managras like a thousand or two thousand years ago, and we have it really well researched. It's because the population density was lower and people didn't need to do it. And we think that this whole managras economy was based on the rich people, on the feudal system and paying tributes and and just eating this very expensive grass. And once the feudal economy collapsed, then the managras collection disappeared. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, I want to. I, I know we're getting to the end of the episode, and before we do so, I just wanted to revisit the promise I gave to the audience about a little bit of romance in nature, and I want to sh show them a copy of one of your other latest books. This book is titled "Sex in Nature," and I love the dedication. I'm just going to read it really quickly. I dedicate my book to Artemis, the queen of the wilderness, my brother Pan, the moon and sun. Hyacinth, the lover of Apollo, Narcissus, a boy turned into a flower, promiscuous forest nymphs, and virgins giving themselves to their boys on wildflower meadows. And I just, it's one of the, the loveliest dedications I've ever seen in a book. And um, I had a lot of fun reading this. What motivated you to write a book about sex and nature? And what is the book all about? I was really scared publishing this book because I was terrified I would ruin my scientific career and respect <laughs> of other people. Um, these are notes from my life. Basically, I started writing the book five years ago and um, uh, writing down all the memories when I had sex in, uh, in, the, in, in natural surroundings, which many of us do. But I wrote this book because when people talk about it in my foraging workshops, because they sometimes mention it, you know, at the bonfire, there are two categories of people, those who did it a lot and those who've never done it, <laughs> basically. So this is more like for people who never done it and are scared. But this is a, a broader, it's a broader issue. It's not only about having sex in the forest, which can be disputable, but um, also about being scared of nature, of touching, touching nature, of getting dirty, of like, for example, 
laying naked on the forest floor of, of like scratching yourself of insects. So someone said this book can be read by a blind person. Actually, most of the descriptions of the book are descriptions are not these pornographic visual, you know, <laughs> scenes, but actually the feelings of your body, what you feel on the edge of your skin and the forest. So when I wrote this book, I tried to cover all the plant communities in Poland. So I was writing about having sex in the forest, in meadows, in long meadows, in short meadows, in heathland, in a bamboo forest in the tropics, in the jungle, you know, in the Mediterranean, on a rocky shore, on a sandy shore, and trying to talk about the things you can encounter, like the, the insects can, can bite you, the scratches you can have, like describing if you lie on a log, for example, how different species of trees would affect your sex or just feeling on the logs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know you talk about the different differences in sap and in bark textures and things in the forest. So yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. So uh, there's a lot of autobiography in it, but not everything, of course. Sometimes I use the, you know, the stories of other people I, I won't disclose, which is mine, which is not mine, but um uh, but they are all real stories from for, uh, of people and i think um i actually could not find a book like this in the whole world literature that's why i started from english because i thought it was more important to to have it available you know on on the internet in english and then i retranslated it into polish so it's published in polish as well with some other stories um <laughs> because it's published later and in 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 English is not you know it's not popular because I had no I self published I didn't have you know much advertising, and and you cannot advertise books which have sex in the title you know it's very difficult <laughs> actually people think you are you know, but in Poland, it got a very good publisher and it's already sold out the first edition and it's been. It's been, you know, the interviews and the comments were done by the left and the right and, you know, in in many, many newspapers and, and TV shows and um, usually positive, usually very positive comments. So I get a lot of letters from Polish people, for example, mm -hmm. telling how they were conceived. I got a letter from a woman who said she was conceived in a, in a large forest, for example. And uh, people telling me how they have sex in the peat bog and, you know, and... Um, <laughs> how they, you know, sat on a mossy boulder in, in, a, in a scout's camp. And it's quite entertaining, actually. <laughs> I don't get letters like that. That, that's, that is entertaining, I bet. That's yeah, great. But, but really, because there are, there, there is like two books I found um, on the world internet where yeah. book di directories which describe like having sex outdoors, but they are very short manuals like for scouts, like, I don't know, how to do it in the, the tent or like, but um, I had this vision of going to mythology and describing Greek gods. Actually, half of the book is written in Athens. I think I was oh. very influenced by Greek gods because <laughs> I was in a conference in Athens and I was just strolling. I even went to the temple of Pan to pray. Oh, nice. Oh, that's great. Of this book. Um, well, you bring up a good point in the book, um, and that's that, you know, many people live in small households with many people present. And so the only privacy you have is in nature for a large portion of the world. And, and that's really, um, that was insightful, I found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like in the past, it was very obvious because people like there were 10 kids living in one room. So if the mm -hmm. young it was a common way that you, if you had a date and you know it, you wanted to be closer to someone, you would have to go hide, go to a forest, or go to a barn, and uh, people still do it. I was in Sri Lanka and I was going on the train uh, from Colombo to Kandy, and I I counted like seven couples in the jungle kissing actually, <laughs> because it was the only in some kind of bushes, some kind of trees. Because it's probably the only place they can get away, you know. Wow. To. And I was really surprised. And now we have these comfortable, air-conditioned, clean, yeah. impeccable sheets and no insects on them. And it's so different. And um, it was very different. There is a book in Polish called Folk Love, a beautiful collection of really very direct poems and songs about making love and the... 
the woman, the ethnographer who wrote it, it was, I think, her doctoral thesis or, or something like this. Um, she even made a classification of all the habitats where people have sex, you know, in, in the past in Poland. So she listed like, you know, edges of fields, you know, this kind of forest, this kind of forest. It was really interesting, you know. It's great. Um, and I also like when I also uh, write in the book, I also talk about like litter, what kind of litter is in the forest, you know, in, if it scratches you or if it's pleasant. You know, yeah. Well, Wukash, where can people find out more about your work, about your workshops? Where can they find your books? Um, is there a website I have you can a direct small, them to? I have a small uh, website in English called the Wild Food Org, when I put like the most important things. I'm mostly active in Polish, unfortunately, because I, it's just like 10 times quicker for me to write something in Polish. But I do translate some things and I have an, a very small YouTube channel as well. Mm -hmm. And a bigger one in Polish, mainly about wild food. And uh, the English books are on Amazon. So um, also wrote this book called um, On the Wild Side, mm -hmm. which is also a bit autobiographic, but just about trying to find your way um, to, to look for something which is natural, what is natural for us, how we you know go back to the land. And I try to describe stories of people doing it in a very different way because what strikes me how selective people are you know mm. i wanted to be living in a, in this shelter but i kept my laptop <laughs> i left everything but not the laptop and people would leave a car or a knife or a gun or a chain so there's always something they want to leave from from civilization that's great um Lots, lots to learn, I think, from your lessons of connecting with nature, living in the wild, eating in the wild. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Wukash, for coming on the show. It was, it was such fun speaking with you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again at, when its conferences open back up um, after COVID. I hope so. Maybe yeah. in Jamaica. Yeah, in Jamaica, exactly. <laughs> right. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID isolation period. You can find this episode and all others on our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also see the video version of this episode on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. And please be sure to click that subscribe button on whichever podcast streaming service that you use so you don't miss any future episodes. So happy Valentine's Day to all the lovers out there in the world. Stay healthy and I'll see you next time. <laughs>